Welcome to the official podcast of the Clean Water Campaign for Michigan. This campaign seeks to place clean water issues front and center in the year building up to the 2018 elections by urging every candidate running for public office to make a strong stand on critical issues affecting Michigan's waters. Using storytelling and music events across the state to amplify the groundswell of public support for clean water issues, this campaign is driven by Michiganders from all walks of life who share a similar priority, the protection of our water, a most vital resource. On this episode, campaign founder Seth Bernard interviews water activist Lee Sprague. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Shorts Brewing Company. Brewing delicious, handcrafted beer since 2004, Shorts is proud to be a Michigan company and proud to sponsor the Clean Water Campaign for Michigan. Check out shortsbrewing.com to see what's on tap at the pub in Bel Air. Love where you live, love what you do. Shorts. But the one thing that we always know as people, humans, is that I am water, you are water, Michigan is water, we all love water, water is our lifeblood, it is the lifeblood of this earth, water is what we need to live. We can do without many things, but water is what we need to live. Water is what we need to live. Hello everybody, Seth Bernard here with Lee Sprague. We're talking about clean water. Thank you so much for joining us. How you doing today, Lee? I'm doing real good. Yourself, Seth? Well, it's always good to be with you. Yeah, good to see you this morning. Uh, would you be so kind as to introduce yourself in your ancestral tongue? Um, my name is Lee. I'm from the Crane Clan. I'm from these, uh, these territories that we call Michigan now. Thank you. Yeah. It's a Ani. It's a way to say Ani is a good way to say hi, yeah, in formal sense. Ani. 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 Mino Gizep, good morning. Mino Gizep. Buzu. 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 Hello. How are you? So, um, Lee and I met, I think it was 2004, right? Uh, my son is uh, 14. Okay, so yeah, it was 2004. Right. He was a newborn at the time. Correct, right. And so we met uh, working to protect the water in Manistee at the time you were Ogama of the Little River Band, yes. correct? Yeah. Um, and that was an amazing effort to sort of prevent uh, water pollution in the form of a coal-fired power plant. Yeah. Um, and it was a successful effort. People from all walks came together. Yeah, there were 10 proposed coal plants in the state of Michigan, and we all had to work together. Um, and, and the main problem, as far as I'm concerned, is the, uh, the air pollution, of course, and the mercury deposition, which gets into our water column. And so here in Michigan, we have every inland lake under a mercury advisory, where the women and children that uh, can't eat the fish anymore. And people like you and I should only eat it once or twice, maybe a month. Mm. 
So that was a, it was an inspiring way to connect, you know, as walk as activists and yeah. in your situation, you know, you're a tribal leader and a father and, um, and you've been a water protector and an activist your whole life. Um, here we are in 2018, we have the opportunity to be involved in uh, asking more of our leadership here in Michigan. That's a big reason why we're doing the clean water campaign to sort of bring water issues mm -hmm. as, as close to the center of the conversation as possible. Um, you've been involved in the conversation around the shutdown of Line 5. You're on the front lines um, uh, in the aftermath of the Kalamazoo River oil spill mm -hmm. in 2010. Can you talk about the connection between those two things? Um, I see the Kalamazoo River as, you know, Unfortunately, maybe the, the beginning chapter of our future as a, as a people. You know, here we had a river destroyed by uh, Enbridge tar sands, which are all the way from Edmonton or Alberta, Canada. And they had been coming through Chicago into the Detroit area. And when it spilled, it was a catastrophe. The largest inland oil spill in U.S. history at over a billion dollars worth of damage. Um, I see that as a kind of a seminal point um, in my perspective because that scenario is at risk for happening all over Michigan um, and not just from oil. We've got uh, large industrial pollutants in our rivers and our waterways and Flint, I think, suffers from that industrial legacy. What we have in Flint now is a situation where people can't drink the river water and they're bringing water now, um, not from the Detroit water system as they had been, but from the uh, Lake Huron, a new inlet pipe. And right now, nobody in Flint is, has really good access to clean water. And there are children who have been exposed to this whose mental abilities will be forever um, diminished. Even if you're a smart kid, it's still going to take some points off, you know. And... So with Kalamazoo, um, the solutions aren't perfect. When they say it's clean, they couldn't dig up all the wetlands on both sides of the river because that would have destroyed the wetlands. So there's still residual oil there. And I think the question needs to be answered, what are we going to do with all of our rivers? You know, I'd, I'd like to see the Flint water, the Flint River being talked about in terms of being restored. Mm -hmm. That's not part of the conversation right now. Mm -hmm. And I think it has to be. I think that for all of us to move forward together in life, we have to make sure that the very elements that sustain life are with us. Not just piping water in past the polluted waterway into my house, but to actually start the hard work of repairing and restoring the waters here in the state of Michigan. Um, and the lands that we share, or the waters that we share with uh, Canada. Thank you. So in terms of the Flint River, you know, it's it, intrinsically polluted, and the, the, the chemicals within that water cause lead to leach from the pipes. Yeah. And you're talking about going further into this conversation, asking more of our leadership in terms of not only replacing lead pipes, but of restoring the rivers. There has to be a plan. There has to be a long-range plan. Yes, take care of the, the water situation with the pipes right now. Yeah. But do not leave that river left unnoticed or unwatched or taken care of. 
Um, I think there's a great peril in not respecting the very waterways that we drive over on a daily basis. And really don't pay that much attention to them because I can go to my house and turn on my tap in some cities. Mm-hmm. Now, you can't do this in parts of Detroit <laughs> mm-hmm. because of the water shutoffs, which is an incredibly um, inhumane thing. Again, the long-range solution includes, in part, I believe, getting all those waterways in that southeast Michigan um, area clean. Mm-hmm. And it seems like it's almost an impossible task. It really does. But I think that we have to do it. Mm-hmm. If we cannot do it, what does that say about us living here in this part of the world? Um, So, in my mind, this Great Lakes is a jewel on the planet. And uh, some of us have been talking about, you know, preserving the Great Lakes as a world cultural um, heritage site Mm. because of its historical, cultural, and um, scientific value to the world mm-hmm. this is a very special place and as more and more people in Michigan are beginning to realize that um, we've got to work hard we've got to dig down deep there's a lot of structural issues with the way that we live that need to be addressed and looked at and I think that's conversation starting to happen right now mm. it's amazing yeah it makes perfect sense 20% of the world's fresh surface water in the Great Lakes Basin Absolutely. it's not a UNESCO designated world heritage site yeah. that's something that all of us can ask from our, our leadership from anyone running for office Yeah. Um, so Kalamazoo River you, you harvest and plant wild rice on the river the, the river banks correct? Yes, yes what do you see now 8 years after the spill well, um, one of the things is when they cleaned all the oil-soaked sediment out of the river, they put down new gravel. They didn't put down that good, thick, black muck that we see throughout Michigan back into the river system. And so over time, what I've observed is the upper stretches of the river and the tributaries are bringing silt and that good bottom uh, muck back into that river watershed slowly. And as that is happening, it's like watching a river go from the Ice Age, when it was all gravel, just just ripped by a new glacier, pulling it through there, and then all these sediments that are starting to come into the river. So it's almost like watching over a long time period, but in a very condensed framework. Um, so, you know, something I don't, I don't really want to see again. Mm-hmm. I don't, this isn't a job that anybody should have, repairing oil-soaked rivers. Um, I'd like to work myself out of a job, but when you realize how, you know, that river is dependent on all the, the, the surrounding landscapes, the upriver portions of the river, how connected and tied into it it is, um, it just wasn't a spot right there that was destroyed. It had a, a major impact on that whole area and the way that we relate to that area. So mm-hmm. as an example, um, Nobody from the tribe fishes there right now. I wouldn't fish there. And you think, okay, that's, you know, maybe me and you can eat three meals a a month out of that part of the river. But that's not what was lost. That's a very, you know, very um, capital uh, look at it. You know, what was the economic loss? And it wasn't the value of just the recreational experiences on that river also, which, and they do have value. 
all those laws are the stories that children and their parents have had for generations on that river that no longer happen. What's lost is the scientific information about the plants and the medicines that grew along those parts of the riverbank, where those families that have that historical connection to the river no longer happen. And that's a, that's a kind of knowledge that you don't find sometimes in a book, but it's a knowledge that's valuable to the people and the place and the relationship between the water. Um, and they don't like to put an economic value on that. And then I liken that back well, to the U.S. Congressional Library. That's a knowledge, that's how they collect knowledge. Ours is orally transferred between families and communities in the place where we live. The library holds all their knowledges together and they know that that knowledge base is critical to their economic stability and moving forward. Well, the same way with us. So the damages to that river are not just the economic damage that you can measure with a dollar bill, those three meals out of that water, the time that you spent recreating on that river. It's that, that, that conversation that has been going on for a long time. And that's what we're in danger of losing in Michigan, is that long-term relationship, those conversations that have been happening between people and people that live with the river um, that are disappearing. And I don't know how to get that back sometimes. It's still there. Mm -hmm. um, I'm aware of those conversations, and I try and tune into them. And I think that's where we need to be at right now going forward. Thank you. So we're still in the process, in the healing process, in the restoration process of the Kalamazoo River. Uh, eight years after Enbridge allowed a million gallons of heavy crude oil to leak. This is the same company that's operating Line 5 under the Straits of Mackinac, 64-year-old corroded pipeline. Mm -hmm. uh, and you've been involved since the beginning of this movement, which is big now. It's a groundswell. People all over the state, all over the country are talking about the need to shut this down. Mm -hmm. It's a perilous situation. Can you talk about where we're at right now and what, what we need from our leaders? Uh, we need to continue keeping pressure on the leadership. Um, the commission, the Pipeline Advisory Commission appointed by the governor came back with a recommendation to shut that pipeline down. I was very surprised. I was very happy that that happened. Um, and unfortunately, before that committee could even give its report to shut down that pipeline, the governor signed a, uh, a deal with Enbridge to keep that um, flowing for now and to replace it with a newer pipeline. I think it's a sad commentary when we have government officials that are entrusted with the public health and safety of people, where, it's, where the governor with a wave of his wrist can make a oil pipeline happen, but water pipelines are not happening in Flint. Mm. So we have a government now that is, you know, almost like telling them, well, you know what? We need a thousand new oil pipelines in Flint. Wink, wink. They'd jump on that in a minute if that's what they thought they were doing. But if it's a water pipeline, that can't happen right now. If it's an oil pipeline, it moves to the top of the priority list. And so whatever the rhetoric is that we're hearing from our public leaders and our officials, it's manifestly evident that our government is more interested in maintaining and increasing capacities for oil pipelines than they are for water pipelines. I can't hardly even begin to think how much that bothers me, you know, and to some degree how that doesn't bother a lot of politicians in Lansing. Mm -hmm. So 
the Great Lakes Compact is something, you know, in my early days of activism, this was a, an agreement that was signed at, that looked like it was, it was definitely sold as something where all of these leaders are coming together to protect the Great Lakes and that this is going to, this is going to protect us from privatization and diversion and pollution on a new level. Mm -hmm. And you were involved with this as a mm -hmm. tribal leader at the time. Yeah. And you talk about what the promise of that was versus what has actually transpired. Well, that was also 14 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, my son was less than a year old, and I remember as I signed that compact on behalf of my tribal nation, um, taking my son's pacifier, we called it a binky, and after I signed my name, I took the binky out of his mouth and I stamped it next to my name and put it back in his mouth. Um, he was there also. So I think the purpose was to stop the privatization of water, selling water out of the basin. And the agreement uh, held that all nine governors could have a veto on any water withdrawals out of the Great Lakes Basin. Mm -hmm. And with the exception of Chicago, which has, they reversed the river in Chicago and the water flows out of the bottom of Lake Michigan now. And that was for sewage and septic purposes. But really, it has not worked the way that I thought it could work. I thought that uh, certainly the state of Michigan's governor and other states would, um, for instance, with this new water withdrawal over in Wisconsin, would have maybe considered that differently than it was proposed. Mm -hmm. uh, that didn't happen. And this is um, something people have been asking us about that with the Clean Water Campaign, what's going on with this Foxconn. You know, uh, it's a whole new level of water being extracted from the lake for industrial purposes. And it goes back to a violation of the Great Lakes Compact. As I understand it, gerrymandering plays a part in this, which is the strategic redistricting that has been happening all across the country. And Michigan has the opportunity to stop gerrymandering with a ballot proposal this year. Mm -hmm. It undermines democracy and it undermines our ability as a people to protect the water. Mm -hmm. So that's something that we can do this year is support citizens, not politicians, to stop gerrymandering in Michigan and prevent these types of things. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, we have to we have to shut down line five. We have to really take a look at privatization, and that's something we haven't talked about a lot yet. That you've been involved with is privatization issues. You know, we can't provide clean public drinking water, but we're allowing private interests to control public water and to extract public water. Yeah. Well, Nestle's corporation, you know, one of the largest violators here in the state. Um, pressuring small communities. They're suing um, Everett, Michigan now for um, denying their permit to increase their water withdrawals in the state of Michigan. And in that area where Nestle's is extracting water, the streams are drying up, the riverbeds are, uh, have less water in them, and animals, plants, fish are all suffering because of this. So we have to realize that, that you know, un un contrary to what Nestle's CEO might say, Water is a human right. And we're not paying for water when we pay our water. We're paying for the, the delivery of that water to our, our buildings, into our homes, into our businesses. And being responsible um, is going to require a whole uh, shift. I mean, we're, we're one of the first, we're one of the only industrialized nations that provides drinking water for our toilets. 
Yeah. You know, it's, we need to start thinking about gray water systems. You know, Detroit to me is an opportunity to revisit how we connect with the water. Um, you know, to me, Detroit's like a boom town, the whole Southeast Michigan uh, automation alley, if you will. Mm -hmm. And we've seen the heights and we've seen the depths of that uh, that uh, industrialization. You, you could say it was one of the industrial hearts of, of the world, mm -hmm. you know, going forward. And the calls now to renew that part of our history, to reindustrialize the Midwest. Well, we're going to have to do it on different lines. You know, mm -hmm. there are advanced systems that are, are zero waste, zero pollution, um, and just rethinking our relationship to the land and to the water that have to take place. So um, I can't remember your original question right now, but if you can remind me, I probably could answer Yeah, you got it. I mean, talking about privatization and, and water as a basic human right, and, you know, we're living in a new time, and the paradigm is shifting in terms of people's awareness of this. It's, it goes back to ancient Roman law, you know, water being held in the public commons. And for you, you know, this is your, this is your ancestral homeland. Um, so I think it's, it's definitely worth saying here on President's Day that Lee was one of the founders of the movement to start Indigenous Peoples Day. Um, and this was 1992? 1992 in the city of Berkeley, California. And where where are we at right now in the United States as far as having Indigenous Peoples Day recognized as a national holiday? Well, in the recent, uh, i say the last two or three years, we've had big cities like uh, New York, San Francisco, um, excuse me, I don't know about New York, but San Francisco, Los Angeles, Seattle, um, Chicago adopt Indigenous Peoples Day. And this is a, you know, it's, it's being... Um, it's celebrated the second Monday in um, in October, where Columbus Day is still celebrated by the United States government. Um, to me, it's a way for people to understand that we're still here, number one. Number two, that we do have a worldview that is part of the conversation about what's happening globally. Indigenous peoples worldwide have some of those conversations and relationships to the water still that we all need to be part of. I think that um, where I see everything going in my mind is that Native peoples here in this part of the world that we call the state of Michigan, or I would say occupied by the state of Michigan, um, we have treaties, which are agreements, contracts with the federal government. And those treaties have not been lived up to or followed. So, I, you know, I would love U.S. citizens to force their government to live up to those treaties. But I think people are starting to realize that the benefits of maintaining and living up to a treaty with Native peoples has benefits for all of us. Those treaty rights protect land, air, and water, things that we all need. Now, our society has some of us believing that we don't need those things to live. You know, I can put a mask on not to breathe the air, I can get my water in a pipe, don't have to worry about the creek down the road. And I don't have to worry about the toxins that I put onto the land from my lifestyle. But um, if we cannot develop a sustainable economy in the Great Lakes region with 20% of the world's fresh water, I need to know where that's going to happen at. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If it can't happen here, I don't know where it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. It needs to happen here. And as we're taking all these small steps in all of our individual lives, these little battles, or not little battles, but battles that are important to us, it's important to realize that they are connected to each other. Mm -hmm. That 
it's easy to think of us as just fighting, you know, from a very small position against this large bureaucracy, this large governmental entity that is in bed with industry and is literally permitting industry to pollute our waters. And so once we start to realize that, that we have a lot more in common and that the things that are outlined in those treaties that Native peoples have with the United States government here in this part of the world, but also in large parts of where the United States currently occupies, that there are benefits not just for tribal peoples and adhering to those agreements, but for all of us. Mm-hmm. And not just us, but for the squirrels, the birds, the fish, um, and the bees. Mm. So... You know, going forward, um, something I'm always communicating on is, you know, when I go to a college, when I go to a college campus, and I'll be in a classroom, and I'll say, "Hey, who here has a treaty?" Nobody raises their hand. Maybe there's one native person that raises their hand in the back row. Mm-hmm. I'm like, "No, all of you have a treaty with my people. Mm-hmm. My people have a couple of treaties that we work with the United States government on, but as U.S. citizens, you have hundreds of treaties." Mm-hmm. with hundreds of nations throughout North America that you need to revisit and breathe life into them. Mm-hmm. Okay, breathe truth into them. Um, those are solemn agreements between our peoples that have not been lived up to. And I can't say that it will be a perfect world, but I do know that some of the problems that we face today together would be better served by an understanding of those treaties and actually living up to the the, the living words of those trees. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what I believe. Absolutely. And we're seeing that in Michigan. Folks at the Grand Traverse Band are, are working to use treaty rights to protect the, the Straits of Mackinac. Absolutely. Um, it's also been applied to the Flint situation as well, treaty rights to protect the river, to tra- protect drinking water. So in protecting our water, supporting treaty rights is something that we all can do. Well, just, you know, just the fight against... Um, Invasive species against mm-hmm. alewife um, uh, coming into the into the area. Um, that is because we're fighting to maintain the native biological systems of the Great Lakes. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been trying to fight ballast water coming into the Great Lakes. You know, now we have mussels, uh, quagga and zebra mussels that are probably ninety percent of the biomass in the Great Lakes at this point. So we've already seen a large shift in just the going from a native fisheries. Now to where much of the actual life in the Great Lakes is not native anymore. You know, salmon were brought into this area to deal with uh, the alewives coming out of the oceans. Um, We've got ocean ships coming in, dumping their ocean ballast water into the Great Lakes and new microorganisms taking root here. So, you know, it's it's important to know that what we see here isn't the way it is or was. Mm. And there are a lot of good people actually working to get that turned around. Mm-hmm. But it's something that needs to be uh, needs additional focus and additional work mm-hmm. uh, to get to where we where it can be a good thing again for all of us. Absolutely. And so, I think we've reached a time too where you know we've reached the threshold of what we can what we can sustain in order to maintain life, to maintain society, our ecosystems, our social systems. And people are are really tired of the way things have been done in terms of divide and conquer. And having, 
you know, a very small number of people benefiting economically from the efforts of many um, and having it happen at the expense of our ecosystems, of our watersheds. I have a lot of people asking me, you know, what can I do? I want to get involved. And there's so much that we have to do, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So one of the dangers there is burnout. We talked about how, you know, healing and wellness have to be a part of activism. And we've seen a lot of people go hard and work basically 24 hours a day for a number of years to the point where the, the body can no longer sustain what the mind wants to do. At the same time, you have a lot of people who have been doing good work in all our communities throughout Michigan for many, many years. And uh, if people who are new to the activist movement or to, to, to supporting watersheds and the Great Lakes want to get involved, um, they don't have to go very far to find people that they can help and learn from. And I've found that um, kind of a sense of fascination has helped keep me uh, in, the, in the work. Um, remaining fascinated, uh, even when I see things that are horrific, to, to try to learn more and remain curious. How did this come to be? How can we shift this into something that works better for everyone? Because we are all in this together. Um, our children are definitely in it for their whole lives. Um, and and so, you know, in, in closing, Lee, I'm interested in what you would have to say to people who want to get involved, want to get involved in an election year. We have an incredible potential to, to change the game, to change the way business is done, to, to invoke uh, restoration into um, the way that our economy works, localism. Um, there are lots of different groups people can get involved with. What are some things that you have to say to people? Well, for elected candidates in the, the state of Michigan, I would say the Great Lake Restoration Initiative, the GLRI, which is uh, came out of the Great Lakes Compact, and those are funds allocated to restoring the Great Lakes and the associated waters and river systems. Um, so um, some of the monies that pay for the work I do in the Kalamazoo come from that effort. Some of them come from um, Enbridge Settlement Funds. So I think that's an important uh, metric, is where do your candidates stand on the Great Lakes restoration issue? I can tell you that the last time this was on the budget for being um, cut back, that Senator Stapp and Ann Peters were instrumental in um, making sure that those funds got restored back into the budget. Um, This year, I believe, uh, President Trump has um, proposed an 80% cut I have faith that it will be restored, in, um, if not in whole, the majority of it, you know, hopefully. So that's something that I think people can work on right now by calling their senators um, and their congressmen. Um, that, that's an important issue for you. And that helps those congressmen make the right votes while they're in Washington, D.C. That's something that's on the short-term horizon. Um, I think looking forward a little bit longer, um, you know, we've been talking a little bit about um, getting the whole entirety of the Great Lakes designated a United Nations World Heritage um, location for its cultural, historic, and scientific contributions, unique in the world. You have 20% of the water here. That could add some protection and some uh, momentum maybe going forward in restoration work and getting the ecosystems on this part of the planet um, working better. You know, I tell people there's money in restoring the body. You know, healthcare is, you know, 15 to 20% of the economy. There's money in restoring cars, you know, repairing cars that have been damaged. 
there has to be some economic viability in restoring the planet that we live on. And that's where I'm going with this. Um, That's what I hope to see happening in the future as we all start working together to live our lives. And personally, I like to say, you know what? I like to live for the well wishes of the seventh generation. Mm. That after I'm gone, seven generations from now, they'll look back at the conversations and the work we did today, and they would have good things to say about us. Mm. And I try and work um, with that in mind. Thank you so much for sharing so generously yeah, today. You're welcome. Thanks for coming on out. Appreciate it. If you've resonated with what you've heard in this episode, we encourage you to get involved with the Clean Water Campaign for Michigan. Help us change the game from divide and conquer top-down politics to a grassroots community effort where people from all walks are united in pressuring anyone running for public office in Michigan to stand strong on clean water issues. Visit michigancleanwater.org to learn more and follow us on Instagram and Facebook to stay connected. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.